Book 2, Chapter 2 of The Heavenly Twins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Heavenly Twins by Sarah Grand. Book 2, Chapter 2. Mrs. Beale and Edith arrived in Malta almost immediately after Evadne herself, and it so happened that the latter, when she went with Colonel Cahoon to call upon them, met for the first time in their drawing-room most of the people to whom she was to become really attached during her sojourn in Malta. There were Mrs. Sillinger, wife of the colonel of one of the other regiments stationed on the island, Mrs. Malcolmson, also the wife of a military man, the Reverend Basil Sinjin, a man of good family, pronounced refinement, and ultra-ritualistic practices, and Mr. Austin B. Price, a distinguished American diplomatist and man of letters, to whom she became especially attached. Mrs. Beale and Edith also were from that time forward two of her dearest and most valued friends, she looked very charming on the occasion of that first visit. Mrs. Beale received her with quite effusive kindliness. She had promised Mrs. Orton Begg to be a mother to her, and had been building a little aerial castle wherein she saw herself installed as principal adviser, comforter, confidential friend, and invaluable help generally under certain circumstances of peculiar trial and happy interest to which young wives are subject. Evadne and Edith looked at each other with a kind of pleased surprise. "'How tall you have grown,' said Evadne. "'And how young you are to be married,' Edith rejoined. "'I was so glad when Mrs. Ortenbeg told us you were here. "'That was one of the reasons which decided us to come, I think. "'I hope we shall see a good deal of each other,' said Evadne. That would be delightful, Edith answered. Then suddenly she blushed. She had recognised someone who had just entered the room. And Evadne, narrowing her eyes to see who it was, recognised him as Sir Mosley Menteith, a captain in the Cahoon Highlanders, whose acquaintance she had made the day before, when he had called upon her for the first time. He shook hands with Mrs Beale, and stood talking to her, looking down at her intently, until someone else claimed her attention. Then he turned away, rested the back of his left hand, in which he was holding his hat, on his haunch, fixed an eyeglass in his eye, and looked round with an expression of great gravity, twirling first one end and then the other of his little light moustache, slowly as he did so. He was extremely spick and span in appearance and wore light-coloured kid gloves. The room was pretty full by that time and he seemed to have some little difficulty in finding the person whom he sought. But at last he made out Edith and Evadne sitting together and going over to them greeted them both and then took a vacant chair beside them. He began by inspecting first one and then the other carefully in turn, as if he were comparing them point by point. 
uttering little remarks the while of so thin and weak a nature that Evadne had to make quite an effort to grasp them. She had thawed under the influence of Edith's warm, frank cordiality, but now she froze again suddenly and began to have disagreeable thoughts. She noticed something repellent about the expression of Sir Mosley's mouth. She acknowledged that his nose was good, but his eyes were small, peery, and too close together, and his head shelved backward like an ape's. She could not have kept up a conversation with him had she wished to, but she preferred to withdraw herself and let him monopolise Edith. I like you best in blue, Sir Mosley was saying. Will you wear blue at our dance? Oh, no, Edith rejoined archly, smiling up at him with lips and eyes. I have worn nothing but blue lately. I shall soon be known as the blue girl. I must have a change. Grey and pink are evidently your colours, Evadne. Evadne looked down at her draperies as a polite intimation that she had heard. But just then her attention was diverted by the conversation of two ladies and a gentleman who were sitting together in a window on her right. The gentleman was Mr. St. John, the ritualistic divine, whose clean-shaven face, with its firm, well-disciplined mouth, finely formed nose with sensitive nostrils, and deep-set, kindly dark eyes, attracted her at once. He was very fragile in appearance, and had a troublesome cough. Ah, Mrs. Malcolmson, he was saying, I should be very sorry to see the old exquisite ideal of womanhood disturbed by these new notions. What can be more admirable, more elevating to contemplate, more powerful as an example, than her beautiful submission to the hardships of her lot? Or less effectual, seeing that no good, but rather the contrary has come of it all, Mrs. Malcolmson answered. That is the poetry of the pulpit. And the logic too, I may add, she said, leaning back in her chair luxuriously. For what could be less effectual for good than the influence has been of those women, poor wingless creatures of the sphere, whose ideal of duty rises no higher than silent abject submission to all the worst vices we know to be inseparable from the unchecked habitual possession of despotic authority. What do you say, Mrs. Sillinger? The other lady smiled agreement. She was older than Mrs. Malcolmson and otherwise presented a contrast to the latter, being taller, slighter, with a prettier, sweeter and altogether more womanly face, as some people said. A stranger might have thought that she had less character too, but that was not the case. She suffered neither from weakness nor want of decision, but her manner was more diffident, and she said less. Mrs. Malcolmson belonged to a somewhat different order of being. She had a strong and handsome face with regular features, a proud mouth, slightly sarcastic in expression, and dark grey eyes given to glow with fiery enthusiasm. Her hair was dark brown, 
but showed those shades of red in certain lights which betoken an energetic temperament and good staying power. It was crisp and broke into little natural curls on her forehead and neck, or wherever it could escape from bondage. But she had not much of it, and it was usually rather picturesque than tidy. Mrs. Sillinger's, on the contrary, was straight and luxuriant and always neat. It had been light golden brown in her youth, but was somewhat faded. Mrs. Malcolmson spoke as well as she looked, the resonant tones of her rich contralto voice pleasing the ear more than her opinion startled the understanding. She owed half her success in life to the careful management of her voice. By simple modulations of it, she could always differ from an opponent without giving personal offence, and she seldom provoked bitter opposition, because nothing she said ever sounded aggressive. If she had not been a good woman, she would have been a dangerous one, since she could please eye and ear at will, a knack which obtains more concessions from the average man than the best-chosen arguments. It seems to me that your poetry of the pulpit is very mischievous, she pursued. You have pleased our senses with it for ages. You have flattered us into action by it, and used it as a means to stimulate our vanity and indolence by extolling a helpless condition under the pompous title of beautiful patient submission. You have administered soothing sedatives of spiritual consolation, as you call it under the baleful influence of which we have existed with all our highest faculties, dulled and drugged. You have curtailed our grand power to resist evil by narrowing us down to what you call the women's sphere, wherein you insist that we shall be unconditional slaves of men, doing always and only such things as shall suit his pleasure and convenience. Ah! but when you remember that the law which man delivers to woman he receives direct from God, you must confess that that alters the whole aspect of the argument, Mr. St. John deprecated. I confess that it would alter it if it were true, Mrs. Malcolmson replied, but it is not true. Man does not deliver the law of God to us, but the law of his own inclinations and by assuming to himself the right, among other things, of undisputed authority over us, he has held the best half of the conscience of the race in abeyance until now, and so checked the general progress. He has confirmed himself in his own worst vices, arrogance, egotism, injustice, and greed, and has developed the worst in us also, among which I class that tendency to sycophantic adulation, which is an effort of nature to secure the necessaries of life for ourselves. But women generally do not think that any change for the better is necessary in their position. They are satisfied, Mr. St. John observed, smiling. Women generally are fools, Mrs. Malcolmson ruefully confessed, and the women generally to whom you allude, as being satisfied, are the women well off in this world's goods themselves, who don't think for others. 
The first symptom of deep thought in a woman is dissatisfaction. I wonder men like yourself, Mr. St. John, Mrs. Sillinger began in her quiet, diffident way, continue so prejudiced on this subject. How you could help on the moral progress of the world if only you would forget the sweet, soporific poetry of the pulpit, as Mrs. Malcolmson calls it, and learn to think of us women not as angels or beasts of burden, the two extremes between which you wander, but as human beings. Oh, he protested, interrupting her, I hope I have not made you imagine that I do not recognise certain grave injustices to which women are at present subject. Those eyes earnestly hope to see remedied as you do. But what I do think objectionable is the way in which women are putting themselves forward you were right there, said Mrs. Sillinger. I think myself that men might be allowed to continue to monopolise the right of impudent self-assertion. But do not lend yourself to the silencing system any longer, Mr. St. John, Mrs. Malcolmson implored. The silent acquiescence of women in an iniquitous state of things is merely an indication of the sensual apathy to which your ruinous poetry of the pulpit has reduced the greater number of us. I quite agree with you, Evadne exclaimed, then stopped, colouring crimson. She had forgotten in her interest that she was a stranger to these people, and only remembered it when they all looked at her, rather blankly as she imagined. I beg your pardon, she said, addressing Mrs. Malcolmson. I could not help overhearing the discussion and I am deeply interested. I am Mrs. Cahoon, she broke off, covered with confusion. Oh, I am very glad to make your acquaintance, Mrs. Malcolmson said warmly. I called on you today on my way here, but you were out. And so did I, said Mrs. Sillinger. And I hope to have the pleasure very soon, Mr. St. John added, bowing. Mrs. Beale joined the group just then. You have been talking so merrily in this corner, she said, sitting down on a high chair as she spoke. I've been wondering what it was all about. Women's rights, Mrs. Malcolmson uttered in deeply tragic tones. Women's rights? Oh dear me, how dreadful, Mrs. Beale exclaimed comfortably. I won't hear a word on the subject. Not on the subject of cooking, said Mrs. Malcolmson. What's cooking got to do with it, Mrs. Beale asked. Why, everything, Mrs. Malcolmson answered, smiling. If only Mr. St. John and a few other very good men would stand up in their pulpits boldly and assure those who dread innovation that their food will be the better cooked, and the sphere itself will roll along all the more smoothly for the changes we find necessary. There would be an end of their opposition. I would not promise women cooks, for I really think myself that the men are superior. They put so much more feeling into it. And I can never understand why they do not quarrel with us for the possession of that department. I am sure we are quite ready to resign it. And really, when one comes to think of it, it is obvious that the kitchen is much more the man's sphere than the woman's, for it is there that his heart is. 
You beguile me, my dear, Mrs Beale said, smiling, but I will not listen to your wicked railleries. She looked at Mrs Sillinger. I came to ask if you would be so kind as to play us something, she said. Mrs Sillinger was a perfect musician, and as Evadne listened, her heart expanded. When the music ceased, she looked up and about her blankly, like one who is bewildered by the sudden discovery of an unexpected loss. And with that expression still upon her face, she met the bright, penetrating, kindly eye of a small, thin, elderly gentleman with refined features, a wrinkled forehead and thick grey hair, who was looking at her so fixedly from the other side of the room that at first her own glance fell but the next moment she felt an irresistible impulse to look at him again. The attraction was mutual. He got up at once from the low ottoman on which he was sitting and came across to her, and she welcomed his approach with a smile. Excuse the liberty of an old man who has not been introduced, he said. You are Mrs. Cochoon, I know, and my name is Price. I am an American and I came to Europe on official business for my country first of all, but I am now travelling for my own pleasure. I am very glad to make your acquaintance, Evadne answered. Before they could say another word to each other, however, there was a general move of guests departing, and Colonel Cahoon came to carry her off. She held out her hand to Mr. Price. We shall meet again, she said. With your permission, I will call, he answered. End of chapter 2